I'm John Butensky, and you're listening to Nick Nack Goes to the Movies, the one-stop shop podcast for all things movies, TV, and pop culture. Turns out he's a major cinephile. They don't watch enough movies! It's a very simple formula! And here we go. Welcome back to another episode of Nick Nack Goes to the Movies, taking a breather from breaking new movie things and going back to the podcast roots. You know what that means classic horror or slasher content that y'all know me for after the recent availability of the first of a lesser known slasher trilogy from the 90s on hbo max it was time to get the whole set well at least the first two this franchise boasts the cast of 90s royalty including jennifer love hewitt freddie prince jr sarah michelle geller and brandy norwood to name a few. I'm of course talking about the I Know What You Did Last Summer franchise. You may be surprised that this is an actual trilogy and not just duology that ended the story of summer slasher fun before the turn of the 21st century. Well, besides the film franchise going longer than any of us probably realize, there's even more of a future for this source material as a new show that will air on Amazon Prime has begun filming in Oahu in January of 2021. So let's get back to the 90s again, and this time serve up some scares before the summer starts in full. I know what you did last summer, the start of the franchise came out the same year as Scream 2, 1997, a fine year for self-aware slashers. Yes, this movie and franchise will always feel, and even maybe, derivative of the original meta-slasher of a slasher in a movie. And if not the first one ever, Scream is clearly the most heartwarming, fun, and still somehow manages to have scares. I view the first movie of this franchise as a fun, maybe not as strong, but still chill, quirky slasher that is very much off the beaten path of Halloween and Friday the 13th. And like the majority of the Scream franchise, minus the fourth one, their first film is available on a streaming service that most people may have, and one that has grown tremendously since the shift from straight HBO to HBO Max. So the usual part of this podcast, who is in this film? For starters, I wasn't actually going to mention the slasher main character in Muse Watson, but actually he's in one of me and my mom's favorite shows in Prison Break. He was Charles Westmoreland, a.k.a. D.B. Cooper, the old guy who did the jump out of the plane heist. So, love to see some more Prison Break alums and other things, especially as we get the start of the latest season of Legends of Tomorrow with Dominic Purcell. Jennifer Love Hewitt is the lead of the series, and while she may not be my favorite final girl, could be Sydney Prescott, could be Laurie Strode, who knows. She is good in the role. I may not know her earlier works or her latest carved-out cop role on TV, but she, like many in the franchise, were the actors of the 90s. The most interesting part of the cast, for me, has to be both Freddie Prince Jr. and Sarah Michelle Gellar. While they are both in the first film, they actually met romantically here, and a few years later, they're together dating and have since had two kids, and have also acted in other movies together, including as Fred and Velma in the critically underrated live-action Scooby-Doo duology, along with slasher actor Matthew Lillard. In light of the recent celebrated holiday, and a belated May the 4th be with you, Prince Jr., for me, is known for his lead role as Kanan Jarrus in Star Wars Rebels, and had a brief cameo role in the new Bad Batch show. 
Sarah Michelle Gellar also had a small stint in the show that he's a lead in, in Rebels. Gellar, of course, is most known for her Buffy days, a show that I still have not gotten past season one of Hulu, but will hopefully, that can be my summer project, my summer reading, if you remember that back in the day. She also was in the other spooky slasher franchise, small role, but memorable enough in Scream 2. I will try not to compare too much to Scream, but this is a forewarning that that will totally happen throughout this episode, especially since I'm waiting for our Scream podcast episode. I gotta have that fifth entry in the film franchise come out, and that episode for the podcast will just be filmatic. We're not counting the three seasons of two separate TV storylines. Gotta spread the love, spread the wealth of the Scream content. You know, you scream, I scream, we all scream for Scream. For starters, I do for sure like the setting of a small town on the water. That's what they're doing for the latest American Horror Story, seemingly. It may not be a huge difference, but does help give it some separation from Scream, and taking place for the most part as a franchise outside of school. And yes, our main cast of teams plays well together and have a fun enough chemistry that may be a bit less than Scream, but it's clearly more compared to the random teens from Friday the 13th. That's obviously helped by a main cast of 4 to 5 as opposed to 10 to 12, where it's actually not really main, it's more of an ensemble cast, where by the end of each Friday the 13th, 11 of those characters are probably dead and you'll never see the 12th again. They can't all be the terrific trifecta of Neve Campbell, Courtney Cox, and David Arquette. Just what it is. In this film, they try early on to paint a plethora of red herrings in jealous, scorned, never lovers, jealous siblings, which is great, coming off Scream 1, and maybe even the sequel before this. You are bound to not trust teens and expect that anyone can be the masked killer, or in this case, a hook-handed fisherman. I know it's not a joke, but I can never not see the fisherman here and not think about the other thing of the hash-slinging slasher. I swear it will do my and your mental health some good to watch all the vintage Spongebob you can on Paramount+. Plus. The main reason I got that one was for Nickelodeon nostalgia. So the biggest difference between these two franchises, at least in the beginning, everything seems to be a bit more random here. Obviously, as you go through these, you quickly realize there is a clear causality, but there is no doubt what is going on here. In an accidental, either hit and run, drinking and driving, vehicular manslaughter, however you want to legally classify it, not my major, not my area of expertise. Either way, not a great thing to do the last or any summer. It's a fun setup that kind of separates, once again, Scream and I Know What You Did Last Summer. This movie kind of makes your group of teens that might feel a little standard at the time a little more culpable. And not just some youths smoking some doobies, pounding down some brewskis, and doing the premarital hanky-panky, as it were. This movie does have an interesting dose of trauma, especially seeing the event in question first. But weirdly... It doesn't feel like it leans into it as much as other movies of the genre. It does help that our lead is the least guilty of the foursome, but it feels like early on with some of our Halloween, Friday the 13th, and beyond leads, the trauma is upfront and integral to the plot. This feels a bit more like guilt, but seeing this very personal story of fear and haunting thrown against the backsplash of this bright and idyllic shore town the Scream and My Bloody Valentine storylines have both the whole town in an uproar and frenzy. Here, most people have gone through the movie 
without being privy to the slashing, slinging fisherman until the very end. This is also one of those movies where the kills are kind of infrequent, only landing at six in the first one. Once we do get there, there's some fairly strong, nothing insane like popping a guy's eye out in 3D or freezing someone's head in liquid nitrogen. But overall, they happen at good points to characters we mostly get to know a bit. They actually take the time in killing off their main cast, which in this movie doesn't really bug me as much. Our killer is just some guy, and there's some gist of toying around with his victims. There are clear moments where his character's at his mercy and he just lets them go just to kind of milk it all up a little bit. If nothing else, this movie constantly reminds me, and you, how great Sarah Michelle Gellar is in this genre. And there's something hilariously relatable about her throwing every single pillow off her bed before going to sleep. Lord knows I have pillows aplenty uh, on my bed. I do sleep with most of them. You know, I like a little padding and support, but I'm getting a little, uh, <laughs> a little bit of a tangent there. Overall, this movie does a quality job with the scares. The kills are there, but the scares are almost better. Finding a crab-covered dead body in your trunk after hearing sounds is objectively very good. Kind of like the bee scene in Pretty Little Liars, the best scene that show has ever given. And that might have been another one of those moments where I kind of tricked me into thinking, wow, this is a good thriller-type show. <laughs> Not bad. I, I Look, I like Pretty Little Liars. I know the dialogue was bad, but it had enough good moments that kept me going through it all. I know this was based on a riff on the the slasher thriller genre but scream queens kind of had this moment of let's have a costume that's scary but also you can walk around in broad daylight whenever and no one's going to question what it is and the first season of scream queens i thought was very good probably a little better than the second season can't wait for the third season that hopefully is around the corner but like that there's something fun about this costume being one of those things that can be worn every day around town any time of day it's just a small fishing town and seeing how many people own slickers like long rain jackets it just adds to the overall fun when they do start killing off the main cast the kills are awesome having helen watch barry get killed off while she is held back and no one believes her followed up by this sinister seaman killing and stalking geller's character and her sister in the shop another one of those fun elevator scenes to try and run around and get around it all i mean they fly through taking out most of their red herring characters but this is once again one of those master murderers who has a dark sense of humor and takes us time for better or worse to his success but hiding as a mannequin he doesn't need to honestly this whole sequence with sarah michelle geller's character probably the best part of the movie almost reminiscent of the initial kill to start the Scream franchise at times, but it's a little longer. And obviously, there's more to do with this character since we've kind of got to know her a bit with some development throughout the movie. And the best part of all, she's just a moment away from making it to safety. Say what you will about this movie from a slasher perspective, that moment is easily one of the tensest, and the last third of this movie really picks up. Some would say this movie loses itself a bit right after that death. I think it's just a marathon to the end at that point. The overall boat fight is good, but let's just remember this is just some random guy. A little less scary, because his costume just doesn't compare, but the boat setting is a fun new place to explore and have some scares and a 
final confrontation. That's where they find all the bodies and such, which is classic slasher 101. That end, you have to see all the people in random places. This one, they're kind of hidden away in a big ice pile. It may not be as visceral as you would expect the final part of this movie to end, but it ends in a fun way that clearly doesn't lead us as viewers to think our killer is dead. He just loses a hand and gets like shot up to the ship and back into the water. Not not like Team Rocket, we're blasting off again. I just, I don't know. I'm a Pokemon guy through and through. And it comes right after a very poignant line of not leaving someone for dead and not making sure they're actually dead. Which is, of course, what literally happens. And, like, this would not be a scary movie without one final jump scare. With our killer being seen seemingly back from the dead. Or at least some semblance. Never knowing if it's a fake out, more trauma, or the real deal back to finish the job. Overall, I like this movie for what it is. Something like Scream, that isn't Scream. That has some similar moments, but it's just different enough to break up your Scream marathon. Maybe I'm the only one who has those on a regular basis, but it's good to mix it up a little bit. The craziest part for me in the I Still Know What You Did Last Summer sequel flick is that it came out only a year later in 1998. That is some efficient turnaround for a direct sequel. While the main cast is back of Love Hewitt and Prince Jr., sadly no Sarah Michelle Gellar, the new big ads are Brandy. Yeah, that Brandy from the amazing film coming out also in 1997, Cinderella. And weirdly, there's a brief, but not so brief, uncredited Jack Black stoner role. It feels out of place, especially since he might be the biggest star in the whole movie, but man is that a hoot. Kind of like Paul Rudd or Jonah Hill in Forgetting Sarah Marshall and that loaded cast. And that's as good of a segue as any into our main, equally fun and unique enough setting of an island resort. Something that seems like it should be fun and bright and safe. But this franchise leads you to think that is not so much the case. Or in any slasher, obviously. This sequel does make you think it's going to be a bit of a riff on Scream 2, another movie that came out just a year after the first one, taking place at a college to start, and having our lead suffer through trauma from the first one and trying to adjust and balancing all that with balancing boys. It it feels really similar to that. And weirdly, it has the date fascination that Friday the 13th and Halloween both have. It may not be as patriotic as Miracle or whatnot, but if you want a slasher for every occasion, this is not a terrible way to celebrate the 4th of July. The biggest question, beside when the frightening fisherman will peek back up, is which boy is going to survive, which one will Julie end up with, and which one is the serial killer one. I mean, those are the tropes. At least that going into this, or any spooky slasher, you assume will be sorted out and explored. And the trauma exploration here is strong. It's nice to see our lead have a moment of remembrance for Sarah Michelle Gellar's character. Something that doesn't feel as present in some of the Scream movies. For every moment of remembrance for Randy and Derek, and Derek's is pretty brief, there is another character that gets no love or brief moment of thought, like Tatum or a fair amount of Sydney's other deceased friends. There's something fun to be had with the themes of trauma and it being omnipresent in everyday life as something that gets triggered or something that just constantly peeks up on you for better or worse. Let's be real. Mostly worse. It's worse. It's obviously worse. This setup doesn't leave a ton for Ray to do this film around, but this is much more of Julie's story anyway. The whole radio, phone, getaway trip to the Bahamas, all coming from an 
easy fake-out of getting the wrong capital and still going on the trip. The whole movie really wants to assume the entire audience, at least the first view through around, still thinks Brazil's capital is Rio de Janeiro, instead of its current, and at the time one, in Brasilia. I do love our first kill and setup for Ben Willis, or the fisherman, TBD if it is him. But like it probably is, right? But either way, setting up Ray with a quote dead body in the road in a slicker only to almost run him over too it's the best we could have hoped for to get us right back into that moment of tension and scares this same exact setup was almost to a t used in the short tv movie special to end scream season two which we'll call the first arc because season three is his own separate thing home alone on a tropical island and while there seems to be a ton of people Big storms leave it pretty understaffed and thus easy pickings for insert your masked or rain-booted serial killer. This franchise may never explain how our latest serial killers do their pre-kill scaring, but seeing the movie title, I still know what you did last summer, scroll up on a karaoke machine, it makes me think two things. One, I can't wait to get back to bar karaoke and some semblance of nightlife normalcy. I'm always looking for someone to do that with, and I'm still hilariously single do with that info what you will the second thing i think is damn that would be scary for me too but i don't know how much i need that prompter because once again i'm pretty good at singing and singing words to fun 80s 60s and what have you songs don't want to toot my own horn too much but toot toot (laughs) but going through julie's trauma and the whole movie you're set to believing she doesn't know what's real and what isn't Something all of our final girls go through if they make it to the sequel and beyond. But it's a fun, clever touch that is immediately followed up with a letter callback to our initial scare, feared, and trauma, even if it is a fake out. Or is it because we know who it's coming from? Once you watch it, we'll get there. We will get there. I feel like this franchise has more fake outs than I am used to. Not a bad thing. I just feel like I'm used to more sinister moments from the more recent movie watches I've done in the Aliens and Predator series. I feel like the Nightmare of Elm Street franchise for the first time watch is coming sooner rather than later, even though I think Dream Warriors is the only one of those movies, the 7 or 8, that's somehow not on HBO Max, which I'm told is one of the better ones. I don't know. Well, it does take a bit to get to more frequent kills, and they are doubled here from the first entry. It gets to the point of just having random hotel staff and island residents just for the sake of upping the body count. And while they may not all be the most creative or exciting, that hook gets a ton of use in almost every single kill. When while it is brutal, for sure, it never gets to some of the fun, unique set-piece moments from other franchises. Calling this a franchise is a bit of an overstatement. You will see what I mean when we get to talking about the third entry. It is scary, for a very different reason. Scary bad. Yes, easily one of the best death scenes is Jack Black's super early into his film career. Who knows, this could have been the precursor or catalyst to his Goosebumps film time. And after that, we get so many quick succession kills and discoverings of bodies hanging all about in random macabre places. There is a bit of added historical context of Ben Willis killing people and having some ties to that random Bermudan Isle, which is a neat touch, and it quickly gives us a throwaway line of him having two kids, a daughter who is allegedly dead, and a son who is clearly unaccounted for. If Ben is dead, the killer would have to be one of the 
few guys here left, probably in the teen group. Heck, if you look at the movie poster, you see one person missing. Isn't that a bit of a giveaway? It's nothing like that fun not in the Knives Out DVD where you flip the case and it shows who the killer is there. But it makes you wonder who this guy is and why he's not on the movie poster. Oh, maybe that's why, you know? Food for thought. For a moment, when I was remembering this wrong, I really thought for some reason Freddie Prince Jr.'s character was related to the killer. I don't know why I thought that, but for some reason I that trickled into my mind. Then I was watching the first one thinking, oh, maybe he's been bad the whole time, but clearly not. Just sort of one of those things you misremember when you've only seen a movie like once or twice. And once we get to the more immediate stalking of individual characters, the rain-soaked hotel and overall island is an amazing stalking ground that leads to some tense moments to chase the remaining characters about. Like, there's a part where they're on, like, in the roofing, like, attic layer of the hotel to trying to get through a window before the guy gets you. There's some cool moments that are really fun chases. And the eventual reveal of Julie's potential new boy toy, Will, his last name is Ben Sun, a.k.a. Ben Sun, saying that you wonder if the Scream TV series took inspiration for when they did their fake-out for Brand Sun for Brandon James's son. But even still, it's a fun reveal. I did really think somehow our leading man from the first one was the bad guy. Thankfully, the voice of Kanan Jarrus is also a good guy here. And yes, it is nice that the actual actor and role of Ben Willis is back here and not just some random actor in the outfit. They see his face, it's the guy from the first one. It's father and son stalking about, it's a killer combo. And look, kind of what I was getting to earlier, when he puts that leather there, it feels like, oh, oh, he misinterpreted, but he knew what he was doing. It was the plan all along. The real question, and they never really explain who killed who, like you kind of wonder that in in some of the Scream movies, they kind of tell you who did most of the killing and who did the other ones. Here, it's did Ben Willis, old man Ben Willis, kill everyone, or did his son really just kill one guy? You're curious, and we never really find out, but curious nonetheless. And it is a killer moment, after we see this killer combo briefly introduced, when Ray accidentally gets Ben Willis to kill his own son. And even in that final confrontation, it's a bit shorter, it's a strong one to be sure, that reunites Ray and Julie, and seemingly ends the Willis family line. But they never did realize to shoot him in the head, because if Scream or any horror movie taught us anything, they always come back. And believe it or not, somehow, Brandy actually makes it out alive for a rare three-person survival group to lead to our happily ever after. And yes, there is a default ender surprise final scare slash kill, we'll call it a scare, Everything seems hunky-dory with Ray and Julie living a happy new life together. But this final jump scare, it's a bit ridiculous. More than a bit. Ben Willis is and should always have just been some guy. And anything more than that would be ludicrous, right? Well, our seemingly dead killer pulls the classic hides under the bed and pulls her under trick. He looks the same and pretty good for a seemingly dead guy. But this could be just random PTSD effects Early on, we do not know what was real and what was fake after all. There may be a ton of depth or added bits from the first one. But it's a fun enough movie here. The sequel and the setting 
an added killer, it's all it's a grand time. While the killer may not be a zombie or undead, that notion sadly is not far from how this movie is not so much setting up a sequel, but the third one picks that lane and drives down it at breakneck speed. Ben Willis is dead. Well, guess what? He can just be a zombie or ghost or something that makes no sense. Well, for better or worse, clearly worse, so much worse, just like the last time. Here's where all scream and even the rest of this franchise, all those parallels are dust in the wind. I normally review things I like on here. Some bad sequels are a plenty with Mortal Kombat, Halloween, Friday the 13th, Alien, and the Predator series. This is no exception. But this movie sequel, it's bad, bad. It might be the worst thing I've ever seen. But enough stalling from me. Here it is, the ill-fated end to the trilogy. Or you can just call it a weird offset film in a parallel universe and not stain what exists. Works and is enjoyable about the first two. From the title alone, I'll always know what you did last summer. Stupid. Came out in 2006, significantly later than the other two like Scream 4 and the eventual upcoming Scream 5, but the fourth succeeded in at least staying true to the roots of the franchise and overall being fun while still respecting and including the main cast that made those first movies so great. To watch 2 and 3 here, you have to rent them. I always use Prime Video for my rents from Amazon. The second one I own, so I watch that on DVD. I don't love that I had to rent and spend real money on this third movie, but... That's that's the podcast. Those are the breaks. And this will hopefully be the last time I'll watch this. Even though I've now seen this atrocious atrocity two times. Two more than anyone should. It's not even hilariously bad. A direct-to-DVD release that looks and watches like that is all that it is. There are bad, funny movies out there. The Sharknado franchise. Hilarious. And look, there are mundane sequels. More than I've ever seen in the Disney animated world, but those don't count the Aladdin trilogy. All three of those movies slap hard. This movie is somehow a painful milking of the franchise's cult following and slasher genre as a whole to make something that barely resembles anything of the original movies and has none of the original cast to boot. They do have at least one familiar face that I recognize from Pretty Little Liars in Tori DeVito, who played Melissa Hastings, Spencer's sister. But if you want to see her in something, just rewatch that show on HBO Max and not this movie. I cannot explain or express how inexplicably bad this movie turned out. So to the rubbish cinematic eyesore itself, I will say there is one thing I like. The ski lift setting. It is a neat setup for a place, but I'm pretty sure the fun ends there. If you want to watch other carnival horror things, you can check out our episode on the subject matter, or you can watch that one Final Destination about roller coasters. The only tie to anything from the previous two movies is that it's the 4th of July and the fishermen exist, at least in story. The writing here is atrocious, and even the movie visually just looks bad. The actors feel like they're phoning in and knowing what they are in and what they're being paid to do. They also just throw in this line, like the first two things spoken in this movie are, hey, remember the story about this fisherman with a hook who kills people? They don't even try to shoehorn it in there. They just yell it out to start the movie. The Friday the 13th movies used to start off with a long exposition about the past 
with voiceovers. Something that you know if you listen to that episode, not really a fan of. It didn't really work there. But it sure doesn't work here, where there's really no tie-in to the source material at all. And even like just the style they went with this. The amount of quick jump cuts, slightly sped up, with these dumb old film glitch effects to kick off the movie. That's throughout the movie, but even having that, you know, full on display and this the fisherman just kinda comes out of nowhere for a prank, like it's almost just headache inducing, man. There are only so many ways I can say how bad this is, and I have only just started talking about this movie. I get the two thousands were totally rad. And like Tony Hawk's skateboarding games were all the rage and like skateboarding just had to be in things. But having a guy skateboard off the roof for a prank accident it's just a lot of setup for no real reason. The whole thing of the prank just doesn't make sense. And overall, the setup makes these kids feel more at fault and even more guilty. And they're just idiots and you don't like them. I mean, I guess that's it overall. I don't like any of these characters. At least in the first one, you know, two of our main kids were seemingly innocent enough. And they're likable. Heck, even Sarah Michelle Gellar's character, when doing crimes, was likable enough. I get it. These actors are working with some real trash, and it really barely relates to the first two movies that are fun, cheesy, and a bit scary. This is something else entirely scary bad. Some of the cinematic and editing choices are what is really scary here. Everything just looks so grainy, and with how many night scenes exist, although this is true throughout the movie, even more you can notice how it feels like the camera that they shot on just wasn't made for nighttime shooting. It's just always just grainy. (laughs) Random movie thought to show you how, I'll say, unrealistic and like just weird moments they had that just don't make sense. Who has an alarm clock, like a sleep alarm clock in the kitchen that blasts aggressive screamo music? What normal person does that? No one. That's a weird thing. Also, without teasing too much, since this movie has a zombie ghost old man villain does he even know like how to text as a specter or what is his powers of ghost zombiness like also can he just could do rent i have so many questions i'm baffled by the logic jumps you have to take here to understand this movie and it really does just rehash old franchise beats but like badly the biggest questions you're probably wondering Beside why I'm spending so much time on this third dumpster fire movie. But you're probably wondering, beside that, how are the actual scares? Or how is the actual killer? While the answers may not surprise you a whole lot, while a ton of this movie is covered over by these bizarre camera shots and oversaturation of special effects and overlays, even the chasing hiding scenes, like they're just lazily made and acted, the guy just casually on a jog trying to hide from this killer, I remember being dumbfounded watching this the first time, wondering how a movie could be so bad and so boring at the same time. After official review, with the second watch through, I realized I was just annoyed at the fact that I was even watching this. This movie is dumb for many reasons, but how quickly the movie's police force and teens assume and accept that the first dead kid killed himself by cutting his own throat, there would be a mound of forensic evidence, and not from the zombie fisherman, we can assume maybe that's not where it comes from, but like blood splatter and all. Maybe I watched too much Dexter. No such thing, except maybe the Colin Hanks season. But this movie is 
painfully frustrating. This franchise is not held in crazy high regard, but there's a cult following who enjoys it for the most part. But this third entry feels blasphemous and sacrilegious to the source material, and I will never get how or why this was allowed to be made under the same name and likeness. This movie also hilariously breezes through injuries and scares. While they all look bad, to say one more positive thing here, seeing a scare happen in the pool, a guy swimming, he gets hooked and he's bleeding from his leg as he tries to swim away, I get that that point is to have some scares before the kill. But even terribly filmed, it's at least setup-wise cool enough. I think the most infuriating part of the whole thing is there was a tie to Ben Wine to kill those kids early on. They ran him over and left him in the water for dead. Here, it's adding mythology to a fairly grounded storyline like the Candyman or something equally out of place in this world. In the grand scheme of things, it just doesn't make sense. It's stupid. Stupid like taking a regular guy and making him a zombie for no real apparent reason who can't communicate words but can somehow do the texting thing who can do all this setup stuff and who can apparently apparate now and even after snow blowing zombie ben willis to death seemingly he comes back in the end as a ghost now or something with red eyes i mean it's just painful but we've made it through that third one together so now you know what time it is it is list o'clock this list might be the most obvious and linear one i have made yet here it is for posterity's sake And obviously you can check out the graphics on any of our lovely social media channels. Number three, no doubt about it. I'll always know what you did last summer. It's awful. Terrible movie. Like I said, it might be the worst thing I've ever seen. It probably is the worst thing I've ever seen. You could say one and two could be a little closer, and they are. Three is like underground. One and two are a little closer to each other. But I think I still know what you did last summer. Ups the body count. Fun setting. Brandy's great. But... The first one kind of succeeds being a bit more of a closer-knit, smaller-scale story. And I think clearing everyone out in the second one makes it easier to happen. But I kind of like that in the first one. It is a town that has people in it. And the killer is still getting away with killing these people because it's such a small group. And it's so isolated. And it just feels a little more clever. So tip of the cap to I Know What You Did Last Summer. I'll still know what you did last summer. Still good. But got to give it to The original ones, gotta give it the one. So let's talk a bit about the proposed sequel, sequels, and other adaptations for the future. So the biggest and newest thing is that Amazon Prime show. Don't know a release date. We know some casting. That's probably it as of right now. Hopefully they they do something fun and exciting like they did with the Scream TV show. Similar, but different. Who knows? Maybe it'll be like the book a little more. Maybe it'll be like the movies a bit, but either way, fingers crossed, could be something cool for Amazon. And they have some fun things coming up anyway with that Lord of the Rings show on the way. Gotta have a high fantasy darling to compete with Game of Thrones and their latest prequel show that is coming out. But I actually want to talk about the future that could have been. Look, you know now, along with me, how bad always is. It's a garbage pile of a movie. That will never be seen as anything else, as far as I'm concerned. This movie should not be included in the discussion of the franchise, story-wise, and just how much they added and mucked things up. But the wild news that I'm only just finding out, there was not only one proposed sequel to come, but there were another one after that. 
Last Summer 3D and Last Summer were the titles, like the Scream franchise. They were going to kick off the film years later, have one to start a newer, younger generation of cast members, and still include the OG group, keeping all the alive characters back together, but killing off pretty much everyone to start a new trilogy. Unlike Scream, killing all the leads, something that may happen in the fifth Scream film entry. I can't say any of the actors in the first of these proposed sequels I was super familiar with, but the proposed sequel to that had a loaded cast, including Freddie Highmore from Bates Motel, Miranda Cosgrove from iCarly, Nicholas Holt from X-Men, Jennifer Lawrence from Everything Popular These Days, and Aaron Taylor Johnson from Kick-Ass, and more. That cast was loaded for the proposed sequel to a sequel of a dying horror franchise that as far as I'm concerned, peaked and ended in the 1997 window. Genuinely excited for the Amazon show. Lord knows the slasher genre is not super present in episodic form. Not sure how I feel about slasher on Netflix. I always get up or down, but the Scream show was great. But I would have loved to have seen where those two films would have taken the franchise, even if it had to include the dumpster fire of the third of these, those surviving characters. I wish it didn't, but apparently it would have. But now that you know all of that, what was your take on the franchise? Either your favorite film of the first two, how much you hate the third one, or how mind-blown you are from what could have been with those movies and apparently Jennifer Lawrence and Aaron Taylor Johnson and more. You know, I know what you did last summer movie. I am still trying to wrap my head around it all. Either way, hit me up on social at Movies or knickknack underscore IC, either Twitter Instagram, or TikTok. Well, that's all for me. So cheers, and until next time, cinephiles. Are you not entertained? I think this is going to be the beginning of a beautiful friendship. I don't like goodbyes. Let's just call this see you later, alligator. Nick-nack goes to the movies.